I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. The first dead body I saw was a baby, an infant. It had died of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, which is very rare, but happens. A parent puts the baby down and the baby is completely healthy. And in the morning when they go to rouse the baby, it's died. I was only four years old when I first saw a dead body. And the parents had decided that they wanted to have an open viewing. So we came in the front door of the house and we went through the whole house in a long line of people. And the long line went past the crib and they had the baby set in the crib like a live baby but it wasn't alive it was dead and i stayed there at the railing of the crib as long as i possibly could i was four years old and i was really curious and i was looking at this baby and the baby looked so healthy and this is one of the most distinct memories of my childhood everyone around me was saying that baby's in heaven now that baby's with god And I remember thinking that I hoped that that was true. It wasn't really a belief or not a belief. I just wanted that to be true. But at the same time as everyone was saying this baby was in heaven now, and even one adult leaned into me and said, it's actually a good thing that baby's with God. I thought, is it? I thought, where is that baby now? And the problem with that idea for me at the time, is that the whole house felt so dark. It was like there was some malignant color shading through the air, and everyone was so, so incredibly sad. The first murdered person I saw was when I was 10. I was in Mexico. I was between these two pueblos, K-57 and K-59. We were on a rural dirt road that went straight between long lettuce fields. And suddenly there was a traffic jam. And that's pretty odd to have a traffic jam when almost nobody drives the road. But suddenly there was a traffic jam, a series of cars stopped in both directions. And our vehicle limped slowly up, stopped, slowly up, stopped. Until we finally got to the scene of the crime. And there was a man just off the road, just inside a row of the lettuce. And he'd been shot in the chest by somebody else who worked with him. Everyone was trying to tell the story, but nobody knew exactly what had happened, only that it had just happened very, very recently. And I remember his white shirt covered in blood. But I also saw that he had no shoes on. So even though he had just been recently shot, already his shoes had been stolen by somebody. And I realized... As soon as you die, whatever you own 
you don't own anymore. Nothing that's yours is yours after death. As soon as you die, someone can take your shoes. Someone can take your car. Someone will fit into your clothes. When we die, everything we own is gone. So when we die, we die with nothing. I remember thinking about that when I was 10 years old. The second you die, nothing is yours ever again. So it's kind of funny how much we obsess over what we own. What do you have? What do you have that you care about? Because soon enough, it's not going to be yours. My sophomore year in high school, I wrestled for the local public high school that I attended. And I loved wrestling that year. I worked really hard, and I did all right, and I improved a lot, and I won a fair amount of matches, and got all district, and was feeling pretty good about myself, and pretty tied to the team. So I was a sophomore, and there was a senior on our team named Jared, and he was just kind of an all-around, hard-working athlete kid, just liked to play anything. So we got along well. In the spring of my sophomore year, I was struggling personally. Um, I'd left my parents' house, and I'd stayed with my girlfriend for a while. Then I slept in a bus with some older hippies. And then I slept behind a dumpster at the local 7-Eleven. Then I slept at my friend's mom's house, and then another friend's house, on a series of couches and in guest rooms. And I finished the year at an older couple's house. Really nice couple who gave me a nice guest room and as much food as I wanted. And it wasn't a bad end to my sophomore year. And I hung out with my friends in the parks as much as I could. Or I'd just hang out in the park and read, kick it. But one of my wrestling teammates, Jared, he and I liked to go play basketball down in University Park. And we played basketball on the weekends all spring. And then we played on one of the last days before school got out. We played one Saturday. We played for two hours. And he loved to just play basketball. I did too. I wasn't a good basketball player, but I just liked to hang out with my friends in the park. So Jared and I and a couple other friends played for a few hours. And a couple other people dropped in, played three on three. Everything was going fine. It was a good Saturday. And then I left, thinking I'll see them all probably on Monday. But that night, Jared went to a party, and everyone was, you know, drinking and smoking and all that stuff. Jared needed a ride home, and he asked a few people if he could get a ride, and none of his good friends were in shape to drive. And so he took a ride with a different kid that we weren't good friends with. And it turns out that that kid had worked for the local car dealership all spring. And had boosted a car from the car dealership. Would actually take different cars out and joyride them. So he boosted this car. And he was giving Jared a ride home in it. Except he was showing off. And he was going 80 and a 25. And he hit a telephone pole. And he killed Jared. 
kid who'd stolen the car didn't die in this accident, but the passenger did. Somebody who wasn't good friends with him. He showed off in the stolen car and he killed my friend. And the weird thing when I heard was I was just like, well, that's not possible because we just played basketball. Like, we were just in the park together. So it's not possible that he's dead. Like, someone can't just be super healthy and playing basketball one minute and then that night be gone. That's not how it works. Death doesn't come that quick, right? I started teaching super young. So I was the youngest teacher for a long time. When you start at 23, you're usually the youngest teacher. But I started as an English teacher, and in my department, after a couple years, this other young woman jumped in, a woman named Emily. And she was one of those teachers that was all in. She loved her job. And more than her job, she loved her kids. She loved her students. She was constantly calling home. She was constantly helping kids with different problems. She was constantly making accommodations. She was just one of those super passionate, young, vibrant teachers. And she loved English language. She loved Spanish. She loved lyrical poetry. She loved novels and nonfiction. But most of all, she just absolutely loved her students. And she was so passionate about her teaching and her students and being engaged with them, being involved with them and engaged in their lives that she would get completely overwhelmed. She was one of those teachers that just tried so, so hard. And she would regularly at the end of the week on Fridays after school, she would finish her calls home and she would just cry in the English department. She was a wonderful human and she cared about the kids so much and she cared about their real life struggles, not just their grades. And so we talked about life all the time and we talked about teaching. And after a few years, we got to be pretty close. And the thing about Emily is that she had a little bit of a conflict. Is that she loved her students, but also her job just completely overwhelmed her. It kind of took up her whole life. And she couldn't do anything else, anything more than teaching. You know, and I asked her, what, what did she want to do with her life? Did she want to be a teacher? What, was, what were her dreams, you know? And she told me that she always wanted to get a Ph.D., and do research and continue with her education. And she also wanted to live in Southern California, not in LA, but in San Diego, where she could adventure and she could also be near the border and she was bilingual. And I asked her, you know, like, well, that's what you want to do. Why don't you go do that? She was like, well, I don't know. Maybe I'll wait until I'm older. And she kept teaching and she taught another year and she thought about her dream to get a PhD and to live in Southern California and to live near the border and 
She was completely overwhelmed that year by the struggles of her students and how difficult their lives were at times. And she wanted to help, but she couldn't always help. She wanted to make an impact, but you can't always make an impact. And she was as good of a teacher as there was, but, you know, kids have real things going on in their lives at all times. So she said, I am thinking about applying for a PhD program. And I said, you should just apply and see what happens, see what you want to do. So that next winter, she did apply. And of course, she was an incredible student, and her applications were incredible, and she got into her dream schools. She had a chance to move to San Diego and finish her PhD. And I was like, if you're still overwhelmed at the end of this year, you should do it. And at the end of the year, she was. She was still overwhelmed, a little burnout. So she quit teaching high school, and she went and got her Ph.D. And when I messaged her and emailed with her, she seemed so happy. And she came back to Eugene a few times, and we talked, and she was just overjoyed with her research and with her writing and her grad school. And then she met somebody, and they started going on adventures together, and they got married and everything was going so, so well. And she got pregnant. And she was going to start a family. And then she found out that she had cancer. And her cancer was horrific. And she had the baby, but she was in bad shape. And she had tumors that were so significant that they were beginning to break her spine. And I won't go into all the details, but it was terrible. And she suffered tremendously. And there was no treatment. It was way beyond treatment. And she had her new PhD, and she had her new husband, and she had her new baby. And she died anyway. And it was the first time I thought, you can do your dream. You can go for it. You can live that one wild and precious life. And it can all be taken away anyway. It can all go away so quickly. But it was the death of my friend Kenny that really shook me. Really shook me. Kenny and I had been high school wrestling teammates. My senior year at Churchill, we were one weight class apart. We were both starters. We were both ranked number one, but he was a little bit better than me. So even though he was lighter, we were dead even on everything. And we'd compete on non-wrestling things too, like who could do the most push-ups in one set after practice or who could win sprints after the whole team had stopped sprinting. We'd also do, you know, first takedown, first turn, first escape. We kept a long, long competitive list with each other. He was younger than me, but he was better than me. He was smaller than me, but he was better than me. So we were pretty even because I was older and a little bit heavier. That's all. Then I went to wrestle at the University of Oregon, and he won more state and national titles in high school. And it was time for him to be recruited. And he was the number one recruit in the entire nation. 
He was the number one wrestler at any weight class in the country. He had five junior national titles. So my coaches came to me and they said, can you help recruit Kenny? And of course, I did. I wanted him to be my wrestling partner again in college. I knew he'd be amazing in college. I wasn't worried about him at all. So I helped recruit him away from the top schools in the country. And he came to Oregon. And then we were teammates there. And we were tight. And after I stopped wrestling, we kind of drifted a little bit. We'd see each other every once in a while and really liked each other, but we didn't hang out quite as much. And then I got into teaching and I got into rock climbing and wilderness survival. And Kenny was an incredible primitive survivalist. Just amazing. So we went on a series of unbelievable adventures like eating a roadkill deer for a month in the forest while living in a debris shelter. Or going from the Oregon coast and walking to Mexico. Kenny was amazing. So we met up to have coffee and talk through his big survival idea. He was going to try to spend two or three months in Waimea Canyon on Kauai and just live in the canyon, the Grand Canyon, the Pacific. And he did it. He foraged and he hunted and he trapped and he lived in and out of different debris shelters and he made it 77 days down there. And when he came out, he realized that he really needed some community. So he started to live in a little village of natives and they got along really well and he was super happy. And he had saved money by living incredibly cheaply or completely free over the last few years. So he used that money to fly his family out to Hawaii to see him. And when his dad and mom were out there, he had a cough and he seemed pretty sick. Something was going on. And then one night he just passed out. And his dad and mom called an ambulance and they put him in the ambulance and he was stable and he was alert. And the EMT said, he's fine. We just got to get him into Lihui on the island of Kauai. And so his dad and mom were, you know, trailing behind the ambulance. And by the time they got to the hospital an hour later, Kenny had passed away. I still remember when I heard about it, it just didn't seem possible. It didn't seem possible that Kenny was gone. Super strong incredibly adaptive, so physically capable. How could anything take him out in his early 30s? I don't know, it just shocked me. And right away I was like, oh, I lost all that time when we drifted. I mean, we still coached some high school wrestling together in our 20s and we still hung out sometimes, but not like I should have, not like I wanted to. Kenny's death was the first death when I felt horrible regret. When I felt like I hadn't been there for him enough. 
when I felt like I wish I'd hung out with him more, when I felt like I had really let him down. So on a personal level, that shook me. But then I also tried to think about the way that he died and the way that he lived. And I realized that he died the way he should have died. It was probably from compromised water, but nobody will ever know. Probably had some kind of bacteria or parasite infection, something. But who knows? But he died because he went on an incredible, challenging, primitive survival adventure. He died because he went for it. He died because he came up with crazy ideas and then he did them. He really, really lived. So Kenny's death made me realize that if I care about somebody, I need to reach out more often. If someone's my friend, I need to be their friend more often. But it also made me think that more of us should die the way that we live. I think that's important too. In the IOP, the integrated outdoor program at South Eugene High School that I run with my co-teacher, Hira, we have student leaders. So the best juniors in the program, the ones who are most enthusiastic, who care the most about building community, who care the most about their classmates, who love the outdoors, who love adventure, who love the natural world, those top juniors apply to be student leaders their senior year. And the current student leaders elect the next generation. So we always have five to eight student leaders each year. And these kids are wonderful. So one year, 12 years ago, we were on a winter trip with the IOP. And the second day of the winter trip, the morning after we've built survival shelters in the snow and slept in these snow caves, the morning after, the student leaders and I get up really early in the dark. And we eat and drink coffee and tea by headlamp. And we pack food and hot chocolate and water in our backpacks. And we head out on snowshoes to break trail towards the mountain. The student leaders all look at their maps and they agree on a bearing that we're going to follow. And we take turns leading. So the person at the front goes for a while until they start to get tired. And then they step aside and the whole group steps forward. And this year we had six student leaders. So it was six student leaders and me. And we take off, and we're breaking trail for the rest of the students who are behind us, for the other teacher and volunteers. And it's so hard this year in 2011. There's snow, fresh snow, thigh deep, and breaking trail is brutal. And we're working really hard and taking turns and sweating, drinking water and stopping. And we come up this little chute and stop on top of these rocks next to this cliff. And it's gorgeous, and the sun is just up in the winter in the Oregon mountains. And it's about 15 degrees out. And the six student leaders and I, we're all just sharing whatever food we brought. Dark chocolate, and cheese, and 
candy and avocado slices. And avocado is what Jack brought that year. He brought six avocados on a winter trip. So we shared food and we broke trail and we destroyed ourselves. And after a while, certain people just couldn't break trail anymore. So it was down to five and then four and then, then three and then two and then one. And the last people left were just wrecked. But we summited. And we were out in front of the group and we broke a trail all the way to the steep, to the cornice and to the final summit spire. And we were so tired that we lay on top in what Jack called a cuddle puddle. So all of us just lay up there in the sunshine, completely destroyed, drinking and eating and sharing food some more as we rested and waited 45 minutes for the next group to come up. And then they finally came up and summited and it was an incredibly successful day in the backcountry. We had the whole group up on the summit. We took big pictures. The week after that, we were back in Eugene. We are doing regular IOP things. And that very next Friday, we were at the Columns having a rock climbing day. And it was weird because it was February and it was 65 degrees in the sun. And we'd just been on a winter trip the weekend before. And it had been 15. So it felt gloriously hot. And again, the student leaders and I were all sharing snacks and drinks. And at the end, one of the student leaders would always stay behind and help me to break everything down and carry gear. And that week it was Jack. We sat up on top of the columns and we just talked. We talked for a couple hours, actually. We didn't go back to school on time at all. We just stayed up there at the top of the columns and talked and Jack was feeling really stressed out. He was too extended and he had too many things going on and he was worried about college admissions and he'd also agreed to do this fundraiser and they were going to have a retreat that weekend and he didn't want to go. It was at the coast and it was supposed to be fun but he was overwhelmed. And we just sat up on top of the columns and talked about it and he told me a couple times how he didn't want to go but he thought he should. And I said, maybe he shouldn't go, you know. Maybe it didn't matter that much and he could still do the fundraiser even if he didn't go on the retreat, but he felt like he should go, so he went to the coast with everybody. And that weekend, he and a couple friends were going over a little stone bridge over this chute of cold, winter cold Pacific Ocean water. And he got hit by a rogue wave and knocked into the water along with another kid, and both of them froze to death and went under. When he, when he died, I was sad for so, so long. Months, it was hard to go to school, to see IOP kids, and see the student leaders, and see that hole in the group that there were six, and now there were five. And when it came to June, I told my co-teacher back then, Jeff, I said, I don't know if I can keep teaching. And I really meant it. I just was going to take a break for a while. 
It was just so hard to lose somebody that was so important to us. And so many times after that, I try to think like, what's the takeaway? You know, what did I learn from that? And I think the biggest thing with Jack was, and I learned that you have to trust your instincts. You absolutely have to trust your instincts. And since he didn't want to go, he should have not gone. I don't honestly know if you can change history. I don't know if there's a time for each person to go, but I always think about that, how badly he didn't want to go. How he just wanted to stay in Eugene. And how he told me over and over the day before he died that he just wanted to stay in the sun at the columns and sit on top of the cliff and talk forever. And in that moment, that's exactly how I felt too. The last death in this episode, I don't know if I'm ready to talk about. I waited a couple months to record this episode, but our sweet old dog, Dylan, he died this fall. And uh, it's now been three months and I'm not ready. I could tell you about what he was like. I could tell you that once I was down in Alder Springs Canyon with him and he picked up a deer leg off of some coyote kill somewhere and he carried it one and a half miles up out of the canyon. And I have a picture of him jogging along with that deer leg in his mouth. Looking so happy. Or another time camping out at the sister's boulders. He and Hank and the puppy dragon were all running around and Dylan found a different kill and showed up with an entire deer leg. And the puppy didn't have shots, so I didn't want him to chew on anything like that. So I took the deer leg away and I put it up in a tree. This little juniper near camp. And then about 10 minutes later, Dylan showed up with another deer leg. And he was chewing on it, and I took it away from him and put it in the tree. And then he came with a third deer leg. And I put it up in the tree. And then he came with the fourth deer leg. And I put it up in a tree. And that tree was kind of a creepy tree. It was the four deer leg juniper. Dylan just couldn't be stopped. He was beautiful. He was Rhodesian and German Shepherd and Great Dane. And he had this hunt instinct. I would go to the river in the evenings, in the summer, with all three dogs. And Dylan would hunt bugs on top of the water all evening, every second. The other two dogs would run around and adventure or come out and talk to me. Dylan would just hunt, hunt those bugs. One time I took him camping on the river. And I forgot that it was a full moon. And there was enough light by the moon that he could see the bugs on the water. And he hunted for 15 hours straight. I couldn't stop him. I kept pulling him in and telling him, you're too tired, buddy. He was like exhausted and limping. He didn't care. Kept hunting the bugs. I went everywhere with Dylan. Went snow camping with him. He went on solo climbing trips with me. He went backpacking with us. I would take naps on him after school. He always found sunshine and warmth 
He was so fun. He had these big gnarly claws that he would chew on. We gave him a British wingback chair because he liked it and kept getting up in it, and eventually he turned it into his dirty Dylan throne chair. So he'd sit in there and he'd just chew on his talon-like nails. You could hear him just chomping on them. He was gorgeous. And I think the thing that I learned from losing Dylan is that it doesn't matter if it's a human or a dog. I don't know why we're here. I don't know what our purpose is, but I'd like to think that it's to build relationships. To build relationships with other people and with other animals and with the plants and the environments around us to build quality relationships with everything in our midst. And Dylan and I had that kind of quality relationship. So it doesn't matter that he was a dog. For me, losing him was as painful as losing any person I've ever had in my life. So I'm dedicating this to uh, him. This podcast episode is for Bob Dylan, the boy dog Hoffmeister. To all you out there, thanks for listening to the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. And my...